Thank you, Gail and Aziz and Ensemble. Habakkuk will read um, the entire first chapter along with the first verse of chapter 2. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Uh, Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth and take it. They are swept, then they they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are a God of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows when the, when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Uh, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercifully, mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. God's holy word. 
Judah was an absolute mess. The revival that was led by King Josiah um, was short-lived. The external behavior was exposed as fraudulent because no sooner was Josiah's body assuming room temperature again, the violence roared back. It was external change without heart change. So Habakkuk was deeply distressed at the people of God. And not just because there were fewer in number. Remember, around 120 years before, Assyria had swept through the northern tribes and had decimated them and scattered them. So it was just Judah and Benjamin. But it wasn't just the small numbers. Instead of being godly, instead of being faithful, they were more like the world than they were like the people of God. And you might be thinking, well, this somewhat describes the church today, doesn't it? Uh, George Barna, a famous pollster, uh, has just drawn attention to the fact that in surveying the, um, the, the questionnaires that various people fill out, there are oftentimes a, a check there for religion, whether you're some form of Protestant religion, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever, Roman Catholic, and then there's a group called none. And what Barna is saying, and many other people are saying at this time as well, is that there are, there's an increasing higher number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, in our society. There are fewer God-fearers as well. The world is getting into the church more than the church is getting into the world to impact it. We can expect that in large measure in this day as the Lord is calling his remnant to move, to move on by faith. Well, Habakkuk was praying to the Lord in the first part of chapter 1 and he's making a complaint against the Lord. He's saying, God, you seem to be disengaged. You seem to be disinterested in what we're going through. And the law is, is numb. It, it is without power. It is powerless. It is not affecting change within your people. And then God's answer is stunning to Habakkuk and to us as well. I'm not idle. And I am not disengaged. We see this in verse 5. He says, I am doing something. I am raising up the bloodthirsty Chaldeans to wipe you people out. You think I'm not busy? Habakkuk is stunned. He is flabbergasted at this. And so he opens up the second complaint, which is our text for this morning. And he's basically acknowledging there, I get it that, that the Judean people are bad. I see that. They are a violent people. They are full of dissension. Uh, they are, they are destructive. But what I cannot get, what I cannot wrap my mind around, is that you would use the Chaldeans, who are worse than we are, far worse than we are, to punish us. He weighed that in his mind, and he just couldn't take it in. You see, he had a problem with God. 
and verses 12 through 17 describe his problem with God. God, if God, if you're everlasting, will we die? God, if you're so holy, will you use evil to punish us? God, if you are sovereign, will you treat us like, like bugs and fish? What, what kind of God do we have? That's the question that really unlocks this whole book. What kind of God do we have? We are called to live by faith in a world uh, that is apparently falling apart. And as we were singing just a moment ago, our faith is characterized by our rejoicing. It is, it is not a sullen faith. It, it is not a bored faith. It is not a fearful faith. It is a faith that rejoices in the person of God. That's where we're going. Habakkuk doesn't answer that question in this little passage, so we'll have to do something else with it, but we'll get there in a moment. But first of all, then, the first question is, is God, if God is, is God everlasting or is he just a part-time God? Is he everlasting or is he always on duty? The question here is that if, if God is everlasting, so Judah won't die, will it? Will your people die? Will they, be dis- will they be dismantled? And he remembers the covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And he, rem- he remembers in, in, the, in, in Genesis 17, God said that that covenant is everlasting. Same word, everlasting. And he's thinking, okay, ten tribes are already gone, already decimated by the Assyrians. What about us? Are we going to get killed Two, is God everlasting or do we have a part-time God? The Chaldeans are coming and they are threatening. Now, he does seem in the second part of verse 12 to understand, Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment. And he probably is thinking back uh, to Samuel chapter 7, where God had instituted David as his king. And he said that God will discipline kings who disobey. He will discipline them. He will bring destruction upon them. But he also says that my steadfast love will never quit. And that's pointing to to David's greater son, Jesus, of course, who would come and reign forever. But in in, in Habakkuk's time, this is simply a devastating threat of of the Babylonians. Is God everlasting or not? And that is a question that you and I may have as well. Is God doing anything now in your life, in our lives, in this world? We might look back on the glory days. I, I, have, I have a picture in my mind's eye of George Whitfield preaching, not just down the street. He did that too. But he's in downtown Philadelphia. And he is preaching. Benjamin Franklin shows up, not because he believes in God, he said, but because Whitfield did. And Whitfield is preaching his heart out and people are being converted and they're passing the collection plate and the money is not going for a fourth Learjet for George Whitfield. It's going to an orphanage in Georgia that Whitfield had started. Those are glory days, people. 
preaching of the gospel. People giving money for orphans instead of padding a lifestyle of the rich and famous. Amen? I think also of the cover of, of, of Time magazine in, in, uh, in, in April uh, 8th in 1966 uh, that describes the world as we are now experiencing it. Uh, on the cover of that issue of Time magazine, big bold letters on top. Some of you may even recall that. Is God dead? Do you remember that? Uh, picking up on the work of, of Friedrich Nietzsche there. And we might wonder today if Christianity itself is dead. Western culture used to respect the voice of morality that would come from the church, would honor such things as, as, as a marriage between a man and a woman, would lift that up as, as, as a good thing. And, 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 and yet today, the morality of the church is viewed as, as oppressive because it is keeping people from living out their inner desires in, a, in any way they wish. So we are seen as an oppressive people. God, they say, is out of date. God is on the wrong side of history. That's the phrase today. That's the cool phrase if you're on the cutting edge of social change. I wonder, if, on a personal level for you, is, is God your everlasting God, or is he part-time? You may look back in your life and you may think of a time way back when things were going well in your family, things were going well in your work, you had good health. You, you look back, at least through rose-colored glasses, I'm told I do that sometimes, look back with rose-colored glasses and you think, all was well! And you consider today the mess that sometimes is in your life. Is God an everlasting God or is he just part-time? What's he doing now when things are hard? Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. Well, second question that confronts us in verse 13, if God is holy, if God is holy, how is it that he uses evil to discipline us? If he's holy, how can he have anything to do with evil? He can't look at wrong, can he? He can't idly look at traitors. How is it that he can just be silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they are? This is the second time that he is, that Habakkuk has used this language of, of being, uh, God being idle. Back in, in chapter 1 verse 3, he, he does it as well. But this problem is even bigger. Um, how can God use evil and still be upright? And we know, and Habakkuk knew, that uh, Judah was bad and that they had sinned horribly. But the Chaldeans were much, much worse. So how can God use evil? How can he use them? Against us. Well, what's behind that question? What, what's behind? What's the attitude behind it? We don't deserve what you're sending us, God. We don't deserve it. We look around and we say, well, they deserve to suffer, but I don't. And yet we know that God disciplines his children. He disciplines you. 
And sometimes you can say as well, I don't deserve it. Although I could give you a list of people who could use some of your discipline. If you're interested. I don't deserve it. Is that what you're saying to God? Listen carefully to this. Um, No, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. What we deserve is even worse. The Puritans used to say this, that God often uses Satan to hatch his own eggs. Did you hear that? Um, God uses Satan to hatch God's own eggs, what God is doing. Um, God uh, disciplines his people using Satan's devices. He, in a sense, can you see it? He puts, he puts his eggs underneath Satan and waits for Satan to hatch them. For example, um, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And it is identified with, with an instrument of Satan, this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but three times... Paul asked for it to be, to be taken away. Three times he said, give me relief from this pain. Three times, give me relief from this circumstance, this ailment that I have. What does God say to him? This can change your life. If you allow it to sink in, my grace is sufficient for you. For my Power is made perfect in your weakness. Where do you see the power of God at work? In your presumed comfort, in your presumed strength? You see it in your weakness. Because God uses Satan's thorn to hatch God's egg. What he wanted to happen. God does what's necessary for you to see your weakness. Did you hear that? God does what is necessary for you to see your own weakness. John Newton uh, said that God never cuts too deep. Uh, He never misses the mark. He cuts in the right spot in order to bring us to awareness of our weakness so that we may enjoy his strength. Are you still fighting your thorns and are you saying to God, I don't deserve this? (laughs) Really? Are you doing that? Well, there's an even more difficult question that emerges in verses 14 to 17. If God is sovereign, why does he make us like fish and bugs? What a question. If God is sovereign, why does he make us like fish and bugs? Notice, look at the sharp contrast in this passage. Uh, as I'm going to read those verses again and listen to my intonation. You, he's speaking, uh, Habakkuk is speaking to God. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes an offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. 
is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You made us, but you made us as if we had no ruler, ruler at all. What does God do in his sovereignty? He removes our dignity and makes us like a fish or a bug. If God is sovereign, where is your dignity? In this coming military onslaught. And interesting too, the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrians practice when they captured a king and his army, they would put a hook in the cheek of the king and they would drag him into the, into the capital city by this hook. The Babylonians were even more barbaric. They would put hooks in anybody, you or me. Drag us into the city in this way like fish. And then we are caught as in a net. He sweeps the bottom of the bay with this dragnet. We can't get away from him. And so we too now we're prey to all this evil in this world that, that can muster against God and his people. Our charge is, God, you must have withdrawn our dignity. You're no longer treating us as the apple of your eye. We're like bugs to be squashed and fish to be caught. Do you ever feel that way? Your suffering sometimes feels, it feels like it's pointless. It feels like God must be heartless treating you like a bug or a fish. It could be physical pain that you're undergoing even now. It can be emotional pain. You can be treated unfairly by other people. You can be treated cruelly even by someone in your own family. And you might ask these questions. Is God at work only on a part-time basis and he's off the clock when I need him? Is he really holy? Could he use evil in my life? Is he alert to what's going on? Is he sovereign? Why would he let me be squashed like a bug? These are huge questions. These are bracing questions that cause us to wonder what kind of a God we have. But listen to this. If there is anyone who would have struggled with these questions, it would have been Jesus himself. He's on the cross. And he utters, is God an everlasting God? Or is he a part-time God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is God, is God holy? Is God sovereign? You, you have used the evil people against me in your forsakenness. Why? Have you forsaken me uh, to be like a bug that is squashed? If anyone wrestled with these questions, Jesus did. He was abandoned in Gethsemane. He was deserted at the cross. And then we remember what the prophet Isaiah said. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Jesus was crushed like a bug by the sovereign father who used evil men to do it. God was hatching his plan um, and Satan was sitting on the egg. Judah's suffering, yeah, it looks terrible, but it is, it is small potatoes next to what we see Jesus going through. 
It is stunning to see how God saves sinners. He is the everlasting God. He is the holy God. He is the sovereign God. And yet he saves us. Because of that, he saves us through the Son of God, who he squashes for his glory and for our salvation. God also, God saves us by squashing Jesus, squishing Jesus, if you will. And he sanctifies us by squishing us. <laughs> Through our suffering, we often, God often uses Satan to hatch God's egg. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago. Remember this, remember this saying, the best things in life come to you. The best things, knowing God, knowing the Lord Jesus, <laughs> delighting in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The best things in, uh, uh, the best things in life. Uh, do not come through the good things, through your comfortable, comfortable things. They come through the hard things. If anyone struggled with these questions, Jesus did, and he shows us how to live by faith. Well, the second thing I want you to see out of this is what we must allow. We must allow God to be his own interpreter. I, all I'm going to do at this point is read a few verses of a hymn that we're not going to sing today. But it is God moves in a mysterious way. It's number 128. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. Just soak this in. This is majestic poetry. Listen, listen to this. Let me start at verse 1. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes shall ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. One thing I find about God making it plain is frequently I don't get it when I'm in it. You know what I'm saying? I don't get it when I'm in the middle of it. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, looking back, you marvel at God's wisdom and you praise Him and you even say thank you. Third thing I want you to see with this, see from this, and, and we're heading into the Lord's Supper. This is right where we need to be. Every day you must live by faith and not by what you see. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago. The whole point of this letter is encapsulated in chapter 2, verse 4, which says the just shall live by faith. So what does it mean to have faith every day? What does it mean to live by faith every day? It means when you wake up in the morning and the, and the floods, the, the, the fears start flooding in, the problems become in full view, and, and you have this problem. You, what, you may, what you see may contradict what you believe. Did you hear that? What you see contradicts what you believe about God's goodness and His providence. 
What you feel often contradicts what you believe. So what will you do when you get out of bed? Make decisions based on how you feel. Maybe you'll just roll over for another hour if you're unemployed and just say, good, I won't even face the day. Or whatever. What, do you, what you feel often contradicts what you believe. Things may, may be not be going your way. You may feel embittered. You may feel helpless. And you may say, where is God in all this mess? Remember this passage. He is not a part-time God. Remember that He is a holy God and He uses even the instruments of evil to get your attention. And He is a sovereign God. Sometimes He even has to squish us to work in His holiness. If you've never done so before, I urge you today to come to this Lord, to trust Him enough to say, I want you, Lord, to take away my sins and grant me your mercy. If you are a believer, and I know many of you, most of you are, can you live with a God who is truly sovereign and believe at the same time that it's truly good? That is your work of faith. So that you may rejoice in God our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we um, acknowledge to you this morning that our vision is, is blurred. We acknowledge that we see other things than your beauty during the course of our day. And we're asking for your Holy Spirit to work in us in a way that we would magnify your name. And that we truly would sing this song. Uh, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior each and every day. Uh, Lord, um, we're, we're hungry um, to, say, to receive the supper. And we thank you so much for it today. In the name of Christ. Amen.